From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy, featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faiza Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of news content appearing in this month's issues of the journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the medical news highlights from the December 2018 issues of JAMA. Starting with the news features, in the December 4th issue, Jennifer Abbasi summarizes the most viewed original investigations and special communications across the JAMA network in 2018. This year-end roundup of attention-grabbing articles included one in JAMA Psychiatry detailing national trends in suicide attempts among adults in the U.S., This original investigation, which topped the list with nearly 500,000 views, found that the rate of suicide attempts has recently increased. And according to the findings, this trend has disproportionately affected younger adults and those with less formal education, antisocial personality disorder, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, and a history of violence. The top-viewed article in the flagship journal JAMA and the second-highest-viewed across the network was a special communication comparing healthcare spending in the U.S. with other high-income countries. The findings confirmed that the U.S. spends more on healthcare, despite the fact that it has the lowest life expectancy and highest infant mortality among the 10 highest-income countries. And the drivers of sky-high healthcare spending in the U.S.? administrative costs, drug and device costs, and expensive procedures like MRI and CT scans. For a full accounting of the most viewed articles in the JAMA network, read the December 4th news feature in JAMA or watch our accompanying video countdown. In two separate news features this month, Rita Rubin reports on the latest debates revolving around the timing of the seasonal flu vaccine and the health effects of dietary dairy fats. Rita joins me now to discuss her stories and what her reporting revealed about these topics. Hi, Rita. Thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Faiza. All right, let's get started with your feature discussing the timing of seasonal flu vaccinations. There appear to be two opposing trends with respect to flu vaccination. The first is that retailers appear to be offering flu vaccines earlier and earlier in the year, some places even as early as July. The second is mounting research suggesting the efficacy of the flu vaccine may wane over time. The possibility of waning vaccine efficacy suggests getting the vaccine too early could be a problem, contrary to early advertising efforts. But there are a lot of factors that make it difficult to pinpoint the ideal window for vaccination. What are some of these factors? Well, one problem is, as the researchers I interviewed said, if you've seen one flu season, you've seen one flu season. I mean, the timing really varies. In the last 18 years, except for the pandemic flu season in 2009-2010, the flu season in the U.S. typically started in December or early January. However, Three years during that period, it had started by the beginning of December, and in another three years during that period, it didn't start until after the third week of January. So there's almost a two-month spread as to when it might start. And also, the beginning of the flu season is not at all correlated with how long it's going to last. 
And what can you tell us about the research regarding the waning of the flu vaccine? Is this something that's sort of now widely accepted, or is there still some debate as to whether the vaccine efficacy really does wane? No, there's definitely still debate. Even people who are doing research that suggests it does wane over time say that's just not definitive at this point. The studies that have been done have been observational. There have been studies, you know, looking at people who come in to see a doctor because they have a respiratory illness and they're tested to see if they have influenza. And the percentage of those people who test positive for influenza does increase as time passes, as you get later into the flu season, and as more time has elapsed between when they were immunized and when they got sick. But that doesn't necessarily mean the vaccine's effectiveness is waning. One issue is the vaccine is not 100% effective. It's what researchers call it a leaky vaccine because it is not 100% effective. And these people might be getting the flu just because the vaccine did not protect them 100% and they were among the people who are more likely to become sick and infected. What kind of study might help quell this debate? What might be a definitive trial would be, you know, randomized trial where you would administer flu vaccine at different points in time and then see who comes down with flu and when. And you want to see if the people who were immunized in the first group, the earliest, are they more likely to develop the flu later? You know, another way to look at this might be to look at antibody titers and see, okay, somebody is immunized whenever, and follow them over time checking antibody titers. And if the antibody titers are decreasing, that does maybe suggest effectiveness is waning, but the problem is there's not a real strong correlation between vaccine effectiveness and the antibody titers. Bottom line then, when should we get our annual flu shot? I think the bottom line is there's no reason to get immunize against the flu before Labor Day when you're still thinking about cookouts and and (laughs) kids haven't gone back to school yet. The physicians and scientists I interviewed suggested it's better to wait till the end of September, early October. The problem, though, as the researchers pointed out to me, is maybe if someone's coming in to see the physician in August... They might not come back in a month or two to get their flu shot. You know, it's better to get it early than to not get it. To not get it at all. That's the fear. The CDC only says get immunized by the end of October. It doesn't say start getting immunized at a certain point. All right. Well, moving on to your next story about the health effects of dietary dairy fats. So there seems to be some conflict about whether it's best to stick with eating low-fat dairy products, particularly for maintaining a healthy weight. On the one hand, dietary guidelines published by the federal government recommend everyone except children opt for a low-fat or non-fat dairy product. But on the other hand, recent research suggests high-fat dairy is at least as healthful as low-fat or non-fat dairy, and may even be associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular events. So based on your reporting, where does the propensity of the evidence stand? 
pro-dairy fat or no dairy fat? This is really another issue where it's not clear. You know, as one of the scientists I interviewed said, there's really not enough evidence to support low fat and there's really not enough evidence to support high fat. And I think the questions here really point out the challenge of doing nutritional research because it's just really hard to tease out one type of food. And even some of the people I talked with pointed out that really you shouldn't even lump all dairy products together, that it would be more useful to consider milk separately from yogurt, separately from cheese, because, you know, cheese is fermented. Maybe that has some effect as far as the health value of cheese. And a lot of yogurts have probiotics. Right. It's just, it's almost been more intuitive that, of course, lower fat or no fat would be better because it's lower in calories and it's lower in saturated fat. And that's really one of the main reasons that it's been about 40 years since the federal government first recommended that people who are consuming dairy products opt for low-fat or non-fat. But the problem is, if you eat higher-fat dairy products, you know, the fat is likely to satiate you better Mm -hmm. than the low-fat or non-fat. And so you might be consuming more calories as far as the dairy products are concerned, but that might make you skip far less nutritious simple carbohydrate snacks. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the challenges in conducting research into the health effects of dairy fat? Well, and these are challenges that really relate to observational nutrition studies in general, and that is for most studies you're depending on people's recall of what they ate. And I don't know about you, but I know sometimes I couldn't tell you, you know, what I had for lunch yesterday. And then another problem is what it's consumed with. It's only one part of an individual's diet. So it's hard to tease out the effect of dairy products from the effect of other foods in the person's diet. Right. And there was a good point in your story that one of your sources brought up, which is that a lot of times, especially in the U.S., they're consuming dairy with something else, like, say, you know, your cheese on a burger, where the accompanying food already is really high in fat. So it's sort of like this double whammy. Right. As opposed to in Europe, people are more likely to just eat the cheese, For you know, not sake. as a topping mm-hmm. on something else. And there's some interesting research that raises the possibility that dairy fats might not be the same as, say, fats found in meat. So the quality of the fat makes right. a difference. Right. So even lump saturated fats together might not be the way to go. So they're definitely a lot of questions that remain unanswered. And I think it's going to be tough to do the trials to uh, answer them. Is there really an ideal study that could put a bookend to this debate? Well, you know, it would be a randomized trial, I think. And one of the scientists I talked to is starting one and has started to enroll people into one. It's a small study. I think it's about 75 people, and they're going to be randomized into three groups. 
And one group basically is no dairy. He said they're allowed three servings of skim milk a week, and that was mainly because some people just have to put milk or something in their coffee. That's why they figured, okay, we'll let them have a little bit. But that's basically like the no dairy group. And then the other group would have approximately three servings a day of non-fat dairy products. And then the third group would have about three servings a day of full fat dairy products. But then they're told to eat as far as the rest of their diet, just to eat what they want to eat. And there is that issue of variability there. Mm-hmm. So maybe some confounders come up from that variability in diet from person to person. Exactly. Well, with all that in mind, then, what should physicians recommend to their patients who are weighing the benefits and drawbacks of full fat versus non-fat dairy? The physicians I talked to said they think people should eat what they want to eat as far as dairy products, that if they are really concerned about their weight, even though there's really not good evidence that switching to non-fat dairy is going to help people lose weight or maintain their weight because there's not really terrific evidence on either side. I think the bottom line is from the people I talk to is people should eat what they want to eat as far as dairy products are concerned. One of the researchers you interviewed brought up another good point which is, you know, this is one small element of a person's diet and that people should be looking at their diet much more holistically and saying, okay, am I eating my fruits and veggies? Exactly. Don't just focus on dairy. But it's kind of maybe good news. I mean, I have to say, personally, I drink nonfat milk and I eat nonfat yogurt. Maybe I'm used to it and it's fine, but nonfat cheese, not so great. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you, Rita. That was definitely illuminating. Thanks for your uh, insights on your stories. Oh, my pleasure. To learn more, read Rita's feature stories in the December 11th and 25th issues of JAMA. Rita Rubin also interviewed Diana Bianchi, MD, director of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, about the Human Placenta Project spearheaded by the Institute. The project aims to improve current technologies and develop new ones to assess the placenta during pregnancy and develop non-invasive markers for the prediction of adverse pregnancy outcomes, among other goals. You've called the placenta the Rodney Dangerfield of organs. Why does it deserve respect and why hasn't it received it? Well, first of all, I think we should explain who Rodney Dangerfield is, because uh, only people of a certain age would know who he is. So for those who don't know, he was a comic who basically made his reputation on saying he didn't get any respect. And I used it as a metaphor at one point for describing the placenta, because many people don't even know what the placenta is. They've never seen one unless they've been at a delivery. And most women are too busy with their newborns if they've just given birth to take a look at the placenta. But it's really an amazing organ. And it is an organ because an organ is defined as a collection of tissues with specific functions. And it has to be self-contained. And certainly the placenta fulfills all of those criteria. But it most certainly deserves respect because it's critical to the health of the developing fetus. It delivers oxygen and nutrients. It removes waste. 
it protects the fetus from external threats, and an improperly functioning placenta can have very serious consequences for the fetus, for the the pregnancy overall, and it can lead to long-term adverse health consequences for both the mother and the fetus who becomes the child. So I would think that such an important organ would seem worthy of respect, but by the time it's delivered after the baby is delivered, its role is complete. So it doesn't have any purpose after the baby's delivered. Could you sum up some of the biggest questions that the Human Placenta Project is hoping to answer about the role of the placenta in healthy pregnancies? One of the biggest questions is why do some placentas fail to function properly? Is it the mother's underlying health? So, for example, if she has high blood pressure, that may result in an abnormal formation of the placenta. Is it the mother's genetics? Is it a combination of the mother's and the father's genetics? Is it something in the environment that the mother's exposed to? Is it some aspect of the immune system or the mother's microbiome, or is it something else altogether? We really don't know why some placentas are healthy and some placentas are not healthy. So if we can follow the placenta's development and function from early stages in the pregnancy, we can get an early sense of potential for adverse outcomes that are not clinically apparent to the obstetrician-gynecologist. And if we can understand the high-risk pregnancies from studying the placenta, then that allows us to intervene, whether it's treating the mother or some other type of intervention. But right now, all that we can do is try to deliver the baby early to mitigate an adverse outcome. Listen to our podcast in the December 25th issue to hear more about the important role of the placenta in shaping human health and research aimed at unraveling the mysteries of this often overlooked organ. According to the CDC, more than 115 people die every day in the U.S. after overdosing on opioids. And from July 2016 through September 2017, opioid overdoses in large cities increased by 54% in 16 states. In the midst of these troubling statistics, federal and state governments are exploring new initiatives to curb the swelling opioid epidemic. In the December 18th issue, Rebecca Volker reports that a few states like New York and Illinois have recently implemented a new approach by modifying existing medical marijuana laws to allow certain patients to substitute their opioids with medicinal cannabis. However, experts point out that there's limited data on the efficacy of substituting prescribed opioids with medical marijuana, and ultimately more research is needed to support the validity of such initiatives. Meanwhile, some believe that efforts should focus more on getting the effective FDA-approved medications for treating opioid use disorder to those who need them. Next up, our running series Bench to Bedside, which covers recent advances in preclinical biomedical research. This month, Tracy Hampton discusses findings recently published in Cell Reports describing a novel mechanism involving two antagonistic host defense responses that may help explain why some people exposed to the virus that causes the common cold become ill, while others don't. For more details, visit the December 4th issue of JAMA. 
In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Jennifer Abbasi discusses two recent studies that advance artificial intelligence tools to personalize sepsis treatment and more accurately predict prostate cancer recurrence. In other biotech news, a new technique that aims to visualize gram-negative bacterial lung infections in real time in mechanically ventilated ICU patients with a differential pneumonia diagnosis. Visit the December 11th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to the headlines in news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn covers CDC reports documenting a mumps outbreak near Denver, disparities in pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, increases in firearm homicides and suicides, and shifting hepatitis A epidemiology. For more details, visit the December 11th and 25th issues. Rebecca Volker reports that the FDA approved the first new flu drug in nearly 20 years and two new devices to help surgeons visualize the parathyroid glands. The agency also issued a warning to physicians and patients about the risk of inaccurate results from in-home and in-office medical devices that use test strips to monitor responses to the blood thinner warfarin, announcing a class one recall of the faulty test strips. In other headlines, the FDA also announced the approval of the first once-daily nebulized bronchodilator for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, an emergency use authorization of a rapid Ebola test that uses a portable microreader, and the return of over-the-counter primatine mist for patients with mild intermittent asthma. For more details, visit the December 4th and 18th issues. And this month's roundup of the JAMA Forum, Howard Coe, Gil Kurlikowski, and Michael Botticelli discuss new emerging strategies in the war on drugs declared more than 40 years ago, including collaborations between law enforcement officials and health professionals to provide treatment and care for patients with substance use disorders. Ashish Jha examines the disconnect between hospital accreditation and quality of patient care, And finally, Joshua Sharfstein outlines the emerging bipartisan health agenda, including health insurance for people with pre-existing conditions and lower drug prices, among other goals. To read more from the JAMA Forum, visit newsatjama.jama.com. Next, in our Global Health column, Mary Jane Friedrich writes about a study examining the cause of a recent Lhasa fever outbreak in Nigeria, the recent endorsement of the Declaration of Asana to renew the commitment to primary care as the key to world health, and a new report from the World Health Organization discussing the global impact of air pollution on children's health. Visit the December 18th issue for more in global health news. Rita Rubin reports in our monthly health agency's update column that the Departments of Health and Human Services, Treasury, and Labor announced final rules for contraceptive coverage exemptions based on religious and moral objections. In other health agency news, an NIH fund for the collection of information from new mothers with disabilities, and a recent Government Accountability Office assessment of the opioid public health emergency response. For more details, visit the December 25th issue. And last but not least, in the same issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that a chemoimmunotherapy combination with the pdl one immune checkpoint inhibitor atezolizumab prolonged survival in patients with triple-negative metastatic breast cancer, an aggressive cancer with poor outcomes. In other clinical trial news, 
Tai Chi Quan balance exercises prevented falls among high-risk older adults when compared to conventional stretching or multimodal exercises. And a hand hygiene program in daycares incorporating the use of hand sanitizer decreased respiratory infections and reduced sick days in children relative to usual hand washing alone. For more details on these and other trials, visit our clinical trials update column. That's all for this month's medical news highlights. Please join us next month for another episode of the JAMA Medical News Summary. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Audio production of this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. Once again, this is Faiza Sanjar, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks again for listening, and happy holidays.